This is episode 29 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with Men's Roundup 2007, Let the Story Guide You. This is session three with Don Miller. I've heard it said that the question that everybody's asking in life is, uh, is what is my purpose? So this is the dominant question that people are asking. And um, I, think, I think it's true that people are asking that question, but, but as, I, <clears throat> as I sort of engage culture and kind of look around and channel surf through, um, you know, television news, um, the, the question that I, I hear most is not, what is my purpose? Um, the question that I think is addressed most often is, is um, what's wrong? Or how can we fix what's wrong? This seems to be the dominant theme of, of, um, of life. There's a sense that, that there's something wrong with, with the world as we know it, but there's also something wrong with me. The story, the conflict part of story, um, you know, may not have been intended as it, as it has turned out. And, and what I mean by that is, is that when we see conflict in, in the sort of pre-fall Genesis, which is only uh, two chapters of the Bible, um, the conflict is, uh, is set up in such a way, like I talked this, about this morning, that, you know, the ground is going to produce food, you're going to have to work a little bit, which will help you value the food. And Adam works for probably years and years and years, naming the animals. And uh, at the same time, he is lonely. He can't find a partner. Now, this is interesting to me, because before the fall, Adam has a negative emotion. He's missing something. So God is intentionally not providing something so that Adam can feel a negative emotion for a long period of time while he looks to fulfill what will ease the pain of that negative emotion. So this, is, so this kind of pain or this kind of conflict is not because of the fall of man. But there's, there's other conflict. There's, um, there's, a, there's an uglier kind of conflict that, that, uh, that may or may not help us feel a sense of reward about accomplishment or about uh, relationships and these kinds of things. And that conflict uh, is, um, is what I think is causing the most problem in the world today. Story is basically uh, the reason that story works in the human mind. The reason that when somebody begins to tell a story, if it's a good one, we all sort of lean in and want to hear how the story goes is um, a bit of a trick. And, and the way story works is um, a question is asked at the very beginning of the story. And we are curious to know how the question is going to be answered. And so we stick with the story to find out how the question is going to be answered. Uh, a princess is kidnapped and she's held in a castle by uh, an evil dictator guy. What's the question? What's going to happen to the princess? So now we're listening to the story. So when we turn on CNN and watch Anderson Cooper or we turn on Fox News and you know, watch Bill O'Reilly, and they're all trying to say, here's what's going to happen, here's how we fix the story, here's how we fix what's wrong with the world. If we only subscribe to this political legislation, or if we uh, just, uh, you know, do this thing or that thing, then the story, and we're all kind of plugged in going, okay, is that the solution to what's wrong in the world? And uh, commercials use this uh, to manipulate us all the time. The, uh, I was a marketing director at a company for a while, and we were taught a formula for selling product. And it's a two-step formula, and here's the, here's the two steps. The first step is to convince your audience, your demographic, that they're unhappy or incomplete. Then the second step is to convince them that they will be happy and complete if they buy your product. That's it. Now, the average American encounters 3,000 commercial messages a day. 3,000. So 3,000 times a day, you're made to feel inadequate. <laughs> Which is probably why a lot of you feel inadequate. Uh, if you would only buy this. So even commercials, 
even marketing, is using the elements of story. It's saying, look, here's the thing that will lead you to a climax in your story so that everything will be okay. And that's how they get you. Um, not only that, but, but we tend to think that about our lives. If I only had this car, if I only had this girl, if my marriage would only do this, if my kids would only do that, then everything would be fine. We're, we're, we're inside of the story that is life, and we're trying to figure it out. So if the dominant question in life is, what's wrong, or how do we fix what's wrong, then what does a Christian worldview bring to the table as an answer for what happened to make the world the way it is? Well, you know, before we get there, um, let's pretend we've got a panel. And a panel from, you know, different people from different philosophies or worldviews. And the first guy, let's say, is, you know, Richard Dawkins. And he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene that basically argues that man has a selfish gene that causes uh, him to fight. It's about survival. It's about uh, acquiring food. It's about uh, procreating and keeping his seed or his legacy alive. And that's what makes us selfish. That, in fact, is what is wrong with the world today. So it's, it's a... It's a uh, mentality associated with Darwinism. And he's written another book called The God Delusion that came out last year that really attacks um, faith as we know it and specifically Christianity. But, you know, that theory or that philosophy uh, makes a little bit of sense, especially scientifically. But let's, uh, so let's look and see how Christianity sort of uh, offers an explanation for what's wrong in the world. Well, Christianity, or Christian worldview's explanation for what's wrong in the world, is at the very beginning of the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis. And, and I just want to read it to you. And uh, it's the end of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And, and I've got to tell you, I'm just going to confess to you, if this is the dominant question in the world that, that mankind is asking, um, when I first, you know, turned back to Genesis and and tried to, to figure out the answer to this question, um, and I read this text, uh, I thought it was very silly compared to Richard Dawkins' explanation. Um, it seems almost ridiculous as an explanation for what's wrong in the world. That a Christian worldview would actually come to this table of philosophers and thinkers and say, well, here's what happened. This is why uh, genocide takes place. This is why you have trouble in your marriage. Um, because there was a couple named Adam and Eve, and uh, there was a tree in the garden where they lived, and God said, don't eat from the tree, and they ate from the tree. <laughs> and Richard Dawkins is over here, and he's saying, well, if you look at biochemistry, and if you study apes, you see, and well, it sounds a lot better, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I want to look closely at this text. Because I had to go back and I had to re-examine it. And, and it says some really interesting things about where conflict in our life actually comes from. Now, at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2 is basically a summation of paradise. So Moses is, is wanting to kind of explain Here's everything about paradise. Here's how great it is. He describes the rivers. Uh, Eve is created. Uh, there's talk about God giving Adam work. And he ends the whole summation of paradise with a very peculiar sentence. And Moses doesn't, you know, waste words. He, he, this is incredibly strategic, this sentence. It is there for a reason. He ends it in verse 25 of chapter 2. He says this, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That should strike us as peculiar. In the sense, uh, you know, let's say I was, I was uh, describing to you guys a perfect vacation that I went on. And I said, you know, it, it was perfect. We went to Joshua Tree and we hiked around Joshua Tree National Park and uh, you know, it's beautiful out there. The, 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 what, the, what the light does in the desert is fantastic against the rocks. Some friends and I were hiking, and we came around this one ridge, and the mountains were there, and you could see almost, you know, to Death Valley, it seemed like. And there we were, and we kind of hiked around this ridge, and we were completely naked. And then we went down, and we had lunch at this place. <laughs> and then you would kind of go, oh, hold, wait, 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 hold on. 
<laughs> Wait a second, you know? You were naked. Oh, yeah, 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 we were naked. But we felt no shame. Which would be even more peculiar, right? Okay, but let's just say Moses, um, Moses is old and that just sort of slipped. Or he has a sense of humor. And he wanted to uh, sort of summarize paradise with this kind of comical slant. They were naked and they felt no shame. Probably not, you know, uh, the case, but let's just say, let's just keep moving. So we get into chapter 3. Now, this, he summarized paradise. And then the fall happens. So we've got the bit about the tree. And we've got, the, uh, we've got Eve being deceived by the serpent. And, and we've all heard sermons that sort of try to explain, you know, in formula kind of speak what exactly happened here. But... Moses does something very interesting. He comes back to the theme. He says, in verse 7 of chapter 3, after they ate the apple, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, now we've got him. He's bringing it up again. So he summarizes paradise by saying, they were naked and they felt no shame. The very first thing that he mentions after they disobey God, is that they knew they were naked. Now, this, is, this seems to be a theme in the text. You know, if, if I send a paragraph, because we're dealing with a paragraph here, less, much less than a paragraph. If, if I sent a paragraph to my editor and mentioned something twice in the blunt and direct way that Moses is doing it, you know, the editor really will call or write in the margins there, Don, you know, you made your point already. You don't need to make it twice. You're sort of you're kind of, you know, emphasizing it too much. You're going to make the reader feel dumb. And I'd say, okay, you know, let me change that. But Moses does it. His whole point about the fall of man, his entire explanation about what is wrong in the world today is this. In paradise, before the fall, you could walk around naked and not know it or not feel ashamed. After the fall, people realized they were naked and they felt ashamed. That's it. That is his explanation for what's wrong in the world today. The fact that we wear clothes. <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now they're hiding because they're naked. They're hiding because they're ashamed. So he's bringing it up again. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. He brought it up again. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Again. What's the theme of this text? Nudity. <laughs> That's the theme of the text. So God goes into and says, you know, have you eaten from the tree? You know? And then he, he talks about the curse in very poetic language. It's an ancient form of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. And so it's meant to um, sort of evoke an emotional response. Basically, the poem is specific, but it also means things got bad. Then, after the poem, God says this in verse 21. Moses says this of chapter 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And he's back to the theme of, of nudity again. And, and I'm just going to say this because I believe this is true. There is no other theme in this text. This is it. So here it is. It's the dominant question asked by human beings on the planet. How do we fix what's wrong? What's wrong in the world? And the Christian answer is, well, we used to be able to walk around naked, but then the fall happened, and now we know that we're naked and we feel shame. What in the world does that mean? Anybody? I'm, have you ever heard a sermon preached on this? This is the dominant question asked by humankind. You ever heard a sermon trying to explain this? We're not even addressing the dominant question asked by mankind. Richard Dawkins is answering that question for us. And it, you know, it's kind of no wonder, isn't it? 
But let's just unpack this. Let's just look at this text in a different way. And, and let's unpack maybe what Moses is, is trying to say, or that we should intuitively know. Um, what would it take in paradise, what would it take to walk around naked and feel no shame? Did you know that there's, there's no culture in the world that walks around completely naked? There are a few cultures in Papua New Guinea and in Africa that walk around almost completely naked, but they'll wear a rope or a thread around their waist. And if they untie the thread, they'll feel a great sense of shame and they'll want to hide themselves. Isn't that fascinating? So he's talking about something that, that definitely nudity is a symptom of, or, uh, but there's something deeper than that. There's this sense of, I no longer like who I am. So what would it take for us to walk around naked and feel no shame? Let's just be really honest. It would take a really good body, <laughs> right? Uh, it would take certain drugs, Right, that some of you, some of you walked around naked in the '60s, and you could probably list them off. <laughs> well, here's what it would take, Don, and you'd mix this with that, and you go to a concert. But you know, it's just not, it's just not natural. Okay, but who do you, who are you naked with, and you don't feel any shame? Who are those people in your life? was probably, hopefully, it's your wife, right? Uh, people that you know. People uh, who won't judge you. Uh, people who um, have earned your trust with their actions. Uh, people who love you. And, and the more we trust, and the more we know, and the more we don't believe this person is going to reject us, the more willing we are to actually tell them and show them who we actually are. Now there's a principle here, um, and it's basically, you know, the beginning of a personality theory that Moses is unpacking. Now what's the principle? The principle is simply this. A human being is designed so that somebody outside themselves tells them who they are. Did you know that? It has to be true. If it weren't true, it wouldn't matter if you walked around naked. It wouldn't. You could walk around naked all day and it wouldn't matter because you don't need anybody else outside of you uh, to validate you at all. You would be the, the strangest person you know if you didn't need anybody outside yourself to validate. This is the way human beings are designed. I mean, if we picked one guy this weekend, at the beginning of the weekend, we said, hey, you know, that's the guy. We're going to do a little bit of an experiment on him. And then... Um, Every one of us, without this guy knowing it, kind of, every time we saw him, we kind of rolled our eyes or gave him a dirty look or kind of whispered under our breath, you're a loser or what a joke. You think that guy would last long here? No. And if you did that to somebody for a long period of time, they'd probably kill themselves. So there's, there's a second principle. Not only are we designed so that somebody outside ourselves tells us who we actually are, um, there's a consequence if we aren't okay. There's an internal feeling of something bad is going to happen to me if I'm not okay. Why else would they hide? I mean, you know, if, if somebody else doesn't like me or, does, or thinks I'm a loser, this sort of thing, I don't care unless I think I'm going to have to pay for it, unless there's a penalty for who I am. And if there's a penalty for who I am, then I want to hide myself or I want to make you think I'm somebody that I'm not. And so the way I get validation in my culture, my surroundings, is I present kind of a front, right? You guys think I'm like this, so you will tell me that I'm like this, and you will affirm me like this, and that gives me a feeling that I'm surviving, that I'm going to be okay. So somebody outside myself has to tell me who I am, and there's a consequence if there's something wrong with me. Those are the internal feelings that guide our actions. I would even argue they guide almost every thought and every conversation that you have. I mean, I think if we really look at it, if we look at the things that we talk about, that we think about, that we daydream about, we, all of those things are about getting somebody else to validate me and tell me I'm okay. Why? Because I don't want to die. 
Because if I'm not okay, I'm going to die. Well, let's go back to the garden before the fall. What would it take for somebody to walk around naked and not feel any shame? It would take all that stuff, love, acceptance. That must have been what it was like to walk with God. I mean, to just have this God in community, in your life, pouring so much affirmation into you that you don't feel any shame at all. You feel no sense of rejection. I mean, he is the ultimate authority. He speaks the truth, and he loves you. And so, you know, there's these wonderful icons from uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church too, for that matter. And they are, um, they are uh, pre-printing press, and so the church at the time was trying to find a way to communicate theological ideas to people who were illiterate. That's why icons existed. And so they would paint these beautiful icons. But they, they, and when they painted the Trinity, they, they wouldn't use actual images of God because they believed it was wrong to paint an image of God. So they would use three apostles, or they would use three angels, or they would use three you know, cherubim or something like this. And in those icons, uh, you will see one of the, one of the uh, uh, figures kind of looking at the other. And the other figure would be looking at the third one. And the third one would be kind of looking and expressing his devotion back to the first. And this is a really beautiful picture of the Trinity, because what is it actually saying? It's saying that the Trinity, each figure of the Trinity, is all about something else, someone else. That it's pouring affirmation and love and devotion somewhere else. And then that figure is then pouring it somewhere else. And that figure is pouring it somewhere else. This is a picture of love. If you think about the, um, the chemical response that you had when you fell in love with your wife. There was this sense that she is more important than you. Remember that? It's actually a, a, a form of serotonin that goes through your, uh, your amygdala, your emotion center right here in your brain. And it's, uh, it lasts for two years. <laughs> I'm not making it up. <laughs> I wish I was. That explains a lot for some of you. Ah, I was right about then. I started seeing her in the morning and it was different. No, but it, it's, a, it's an incredibly intense uh, emotion. And, and, and I think by design, God gives you two years to trick you in to get married because that's about how long, you know, that would take. And, uh, but then there's this secondary chemical that when this chemical begins to fade, there's a secondary chemical that gives you a feeling, a sort of a sweet feeling of, of knowing this is the one. And you can be a little more balanced, you know, in this chemical. And so, you know, the romantic energies are still there, but it's definitely a different kind of chemical. That chemical, I'm convinced, that God gives us is a living metaphor. When he says love, he gives us this chemical, and he gives us these romantic relations, and he gives us uh, uh, relationships with children, and a certain love for our children, so that we actually understand what he's talking about when he says, I am love. It's kind of like light. Light is a mystery to physicists. Uh, you know, they don't know if it's a particle or a wave. Uh, it's some sort of transference of energy, um, but it's different than sound, and uh, it's different than other kinds of trans transferring of energy. Um, but light, uh, you know, moves uh, at the speed of light. <laughs> like 167,000 miles per second, I think. And... Um, but that, that magical mile-per-hour number of light, if, if, if you were to move at the speed of light, you would no longer be affected by time. Did you know that? You would no longer age at all. So light exists outside of time. So here is something that is not a particle or a wave. It's non-material. You can't touch light. Light is completely invisible. You can't see light. You can only see what light touches. The light itself is invisible, uh, and it exists outside of time. It's also eternal. If you shoot a light into a vacuum, it will go on and on and on, and it will never, ever stop. It never loses its power. So here's something that's infinite, eternal, doesn't exist, and yet you see the evidence of it. And then God says, I am light. Isn't that fascinating? So when he says, I am love, he's talking about this feeling that you get, it's just, I'm about you. And what does he want from us? The same thing in return. God, 
I'm about you. It's like this conversation that God is having with, that, having with Adam. I love you. You're great. And Adam's going, no, you're great. I love you. And he goes, no, you're, you're great. And he goes, no, you're great. You know, and there's just this, this is the relationship that exists in the Trinity. So the most loving thing the Trinity can do, if you have a being or a group of beings that are, that are perfectly loving, what's the greatest, most altruistic thing that they can do? Would be to create other beings to enjoy them. And that's what God does. But, true love doesn't control people. It, it says, here's how, here's how I am toward you. Here's who I am. I am love. But I'm not going to make you a puppet because that's not love. You know, and we see this. We see the temptation in this in all of our relationships, right? If we have an anger problem, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're trying to control this person so they won't reject us or walk away from us. Is that love? Absolutely not. That's control. And if, we ha- if we're trying to control people, then we can't actually trust that they're loving us at all. They're just being controlled. And so God says, I'm not going to control you. If you want out, here's a way out. And so he gives this tree. And they take it. They take the way out. But listen, if God is perfectly loving, if he is perfectly good, then he can't have anything to do with anything that would rebel against himself. Because he actually defines what is good. It's not that he's being mean or he's trying to punish. He can't do it. I can't have anything to do with you if you rebel against me because I'm perfectly good. And so we are distanced from God. There's a separation between us and God. Now let's look back at this. Here are these guys. They're walking around completely naked and they feel no shame. Why? Because God is saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're here on purpose. There's nothing wrong with you. You're great. I'm enjoying all this. Then they eat from the apple and it's like this. I love you, I love you. Everything is... And it stops. What's the first thing a human being would do. Remember, we're designed so that somebody outside ourselves tells us who we are. We feel like we're going to die if we're not validated and affirmed. What do we do? I'll tell you what we do in the absence of God. We try to get that from each other. And now I need you to validate me. I need you to tell me that I'm okay. And we do it in the, in the goofiest, craziest ways. Um, Six or seven years ago, when my first book was published, which sold dismally, um, I, you know, I've always been an insecure guy. I was an insecure kid. Had really nothing going for me, you know? And, and, but I wrote this book, and it, you know, it got published. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I would walk into a room of strangers, people who I didn't know if they would affirm me or validate me or whether I was okay. I would feel a sense of insecurity. You know what the first thought that would come to my head would be? The very first thought that would come to my head would be, I'm a published author. Isn't that weird? I mean, I wouldn't actually say it, but I began to notice it. This is strange. Every time I get insecure, I think I'm a published author. What am I doing? Here's the reason that I matter. I can always tell you this, and then you'll say something nice back to me, and I'll feel like I'm surviving. This gets into, you know, our relationships, and it gets into our personalities, and it really creates who we are. You know, the reason that I wrote in the first place, because I wrote an article for a, a newspaper when I was in high school, and I had like five or six people call my house and say, hey, you know, I read that article. You're a really good writer. That's the reason I write today. I would love to tell you that, you know, I I sit down and I go, God, you know, will you use me and will you speak? It's absolutely not the case. I sit down and I go, what can I write that people would actually like and affirm me? And God uses it. He uses it for his glory, which is, you know, just the strangest thing. Um... I think this is the root of our trouble. Uh, The need for validation and getting it from places that don't have any validation to offer. I think it causes so much pain in our lives. Not only does it cause pain in our lives, it causes pain in in the lives of everybody around us. I have this thing in me that that I have to really be careful about. And and when I say be careful, I mean I deal with it like once a month, once every six weeks. And I'm thankful that God showed it to me so that I could deal with it. But in relationships in the past, you know, I'm 36 years old and been in, you know, a lot of relationships. Most of them have been kind of long-term, a year at a time, and just, you know, haven't really found the one kind of a deal. But there would be times in those relationships where uh, I, would, I would wonder, you know, does she like me or, or, 
you know, she kind of said that thing. Is, is she thinking about that other guy? Or is she, and it would, you know, there were times when I would lose sleep over this, these kind of thoughts. And, you know, it's an ugly kind of weakness. Um, in the last, you know, few years, though, God has really shown me kind of what's going on. That I'm really looking to the woman to say, yeah, you're a good man. You know, you're the, and because I needed her to say that because I felt threatened, you know, if I didn't get that. And what I do now, what I have to do now, is I have to go into the woods for days at a time and just say, God, we've got to get this straight. She has nothing to offer me that's going to keep me alive. She didn't die on a cross. She didn't. She hasn't done anything to help pay for my sins. Not only that, as beautiful and great as she is, she's an awful judge. You're perfect. Right? So I've got to get this from you. And, and I've got, got to say, God, I've got to lay this before you, this thing that I do to try to affirm myself, because it's not going to work. It's like false hope, you know? It's just uh, it's a placebo. But we just think. We just think, oh, you know, if I, it, it's, it's, this is the thing, man. If I just have this, then I'll have that feeling of survival. I have that feeling that I'm going to be okay. I have a feeling I'm not going to burn in hell. I have a feeling I'm not going to have to pay for the consequences of who I know I actually am. If I can just get this, this promotion, this car, this athletic accomplishment, if my kids would just would just get this athletic accomplishment, then I'll be okay. If the woman would just tell me that I'm the greatest man on earth, I would be okay. If on and on and on and on and on, and it never stops. It's like a cancer. Anybody identify with that? You know, and so uh, it develops amazing personalities in us. You know, the, you know some personalities are broken down um, in nine sections, if you've ever studied the Enneagram personality uh, theory. And there's, uh, there's the need to be right is a kind of personality. We, we know that guy, right? The need to be right. Then there's, there's the need to succeed. You know, and then there's the need to uh, avoid pain. And then there's the need to be special. There's the need to be against. That I define myself by fighting my enemies. You know, there's need... All of this stems from the fall of man. Um, not very long ago, I got a... Basically, a... a uh, I get attacked a lot for things that I never have said. <laughs> I write memoirs with cartoons in them, um, but I get, I get attacked for different things. And, and um, this happened recently, and you know, I kind of read the, the, the attack that this guy wrote about me, and, and there was virtually, you know, he, I think he'd mistaken me for another writer. Literally, I think, I think that's what he did, because he was talking about things that I, I've never even written about. And I just got so frustrated and so angry, and it, and it was all that stuff, you know, this feeling of threatened that something's going to happen. And anymore, there's, a, there's um, something that I do. I, I go down to the Willamette River. I live about maybe five blocks from the river. There's a place I go. There's a log I go to. I've been there twice this last month. And I'll go there, and I'll sit there, and I'll deal with God until it goes away. You know, God, I'm not leaving this river until we deal with this. You tell me who I am. Nobody else gets to you're my father. You're the judge. You're the only one with the power to redeem me in the first place. And what this does is it heals my heart. And it changes my personality. We I mean, think of the things that are demanded of, of us in our faith. Think of these things. Turn the other cheek. How do you do that? How do you do that if you feel threatened by that guy? Well, you get your validation from somewhere else. If someone wants your, your uh, coat, give them your shirt. If someone takes you to court, give them all your possessions. Uh, speak only in love. If you, if, you, if you don't talk in love, you're like a guy standing there clanging cymbals together. By the way, talk radio, clanging cymbals together. It is. And some of us need to turn off our radios because it's getting us angry, and it's making us choose sides, and it's dividing us, and it's absolutely not the heart of Christ. Just guys clanging cymbals together. Love your enemies. This, this is a tough one. Enemies are the ones who won't validate me, right? And I got to love those, yeah. How do you do that? You get your validation from somebody else. Because we're going to get it. We're not going to go without. We're going to get it from somewhere. And if we don't get it from God, we're going to wreck our lives. And we're going to wreck the lives of the people around us. But how do we do that? 
How do we get it from God? I want to look at Colossians. In chapter 1, I'm going to read... um, I'm going to start in verse 5. And I I just want to really carefully kind of read this. And and look what Paul is doing in this text. Um, And see how he's saying, you know, you guys, you're getting your redemption from somewhere else. But here, here's... I want you to... I want to remind you where your redemption comes from. Now, this tells us something. This tells us that we receive Christ... By the way, very interestingly, there's a correlation between people who become Christians. They feel a very similar chemical for about the same period of time as falling in love. And after two years, the chemical sort of uh, decreases a little bit, and then they just have a sweet sense of knowing that he's God. But it's harder to read your Bible every day (laughs) because you're not having like the panic, I want to spend time with God thing anymore. I don't know if, it, you know, if he doesn't exist, it's weird that those chemical reactions happen the same way as actual people, you know? I don't fall in love with fictional characters. I don't have a crush on, you know, the little mermaid. <laughs> I want to start in verse 5 and, and listen to Paul's advice. He says, The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God, listen, to fill you up with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son that he loves. How, how is this problem fixed in us? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that's going to be theologically um, confusing slash debatable with, with us. Um, but, but I need to look at it through this camera lens so that we can understand. Um, we are fixed in this thing that we have, this problem that we have, um, only through Christ. That's it. So, so here's what happens. Um, it, it, it isn't me that is a good person now. It's Christ in me that is good. Um, it isn't me that has this reunion with the Trinity. It's Christ in me that has the reunion with the Trinity. It is not me that has become righteous. I have Christ's righteousness. My name is not suddenly good. I have Christ's name. It's his identity and only his identity that saves me. I have no agency in this negotiation. Only Christ does. But what what does this look like? Well, here's the Trinity, and they have this great relationship with each other, and they're not angry at each other, they're not fighting, they're not throwing dishes at each other up in heaven, right? They create mankind, they give mankind a free will because that's the loving thing to do. Mankind disobeys, and now there is distance. Mankind is corrupt and ruined because it walked away from God. So what does a loving thing, loving God, loving deity do? What would be the most loving thing to do? Well, you go and you rescue the one who's walked away. And how do you do it? You send your son to die on a cross. And listen, as a penalty for our sins, he raises from the dead, conquering that penalty. 
So in him, we, we no longer have to feel like we're going to die. That those days are over for us, right? It is through faith in him that we become one with him. Not unlike a marriage. I mean, a spiritual kind of version of a marriage. In fact, scripture would go so far as to call the church the bride. And Jesus would call himself the bridegroom. So he actually wants us to think of marriage as a living metaphor for our relationship with him. And then just like your wife took your name, we take Christ's name. And we take his identity. And we take his righteousness. So that now, up in heaven, God looks down at us and he says, you, you're invited back, Jesus. And so are you, Jesus. And so are you, Jesus. Because he doesn't see us. He sees his son in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's it. It has nothing to do with me. It's all him. It has nothing to do with my good works or my actions or my behavior. It has everything to do with his sinless life and his death on the cross as a propitiation for God's necessary wrath on humanity. It's all him. And so when I go into the woods and I'm struggling with this stuff, I say, Christ, I need you because I'm feeling threatened. I need you. And what does this give me the power to do? It gives me the power to turn around and be loving. So what's the kind of... Um, well, not only that. Imagine not feeling threatened uh, by people around you. Imagine, you know, your wife saying something insulting to you and not fuming a little bit with anger or having to hold your tongue. Would life be better for you? Would life be better for her? It would be a lot better. Or with your kids, or with your boss, or with you know, your accomplishments. Um, you would be in that place like Christ. Um, I'm going to read to you the, the, sort of the, the verses that really give us kind of a litmus test of who we would become if we didn't struggle with these things. 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a, changing, a clanging cymbal. But if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. What is it? Love. Well, I think this is who we would become if we weren't so needy for validation. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Let me just read this back. And let's, let's just look at the antithesis here. Somebody who is looking for validation is often not patient. Somebody who thinks they're going to die if they're not validated is certainly not going to be kind unless they're trying to manipulate you. Somebody who's looking for somebody else to validate them uh, is going to be really envious because if I just had a boat, then I would matter too. Somebody who's looking for validation is going to boast. Why? Because if I boast, I'll get you to validate me because I've accomplished all these great things. Somebody who's looking for validation is going to be proud because they have this sense of security in their accomplishments. It's going to dishonor others. Why? Because there's a kind of hierarchy here. So if I make you look bad, I look good standing next to you. So I'm going to dishonor you. It's self-seeking. It easily gets angered. Why would it easily get angered? Why would it easily get angered? Because we feel threatened. Think of, the, um, think of the social conditions that exist in the world. Um, let's just look at, let's look at a couple of them. One is uh, road rage, right? You ever have road rage? I haven't either. 
and I'm very proud of that and continue to boast on it. But <laughs> I'm driving with my friend, and we're going to the post office. This was years ago. And we're, we're trying to cross this street in Portland to get to the post office. And, you know, it's a bit of a busy street, but not too bad. And a guy pulls up into the turning lane. So now we can't cross the street because there's a guy sitting in the middle of the street in the turning lane. But there's no cars coming. He's not turning because he's on his cell phone. And he doesn't see us. So my friend <laughs> gets angry and turns red and kind of honks the horn, but he still doesn't see us. So my friend actually like beats the steering wheel and yells at the guy. And finally the guy kind of sees us and, you know, he turns. And so we cross the street, we're going to the post office, and I say to my friend, I say, that was terrible what that guy did. My friend was like, yeah, you know, he wasn't even paying attention. I'm like, yeah, I know, but we should, we should turn around and we should follow him to wherever he's going. And my friend's like, why? And I said, because we should kill him. <laughs> my friend's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, I don't know, you just seemed really, really angry back there. <laughs> so I thought maybe it would help you if we killed him. <laughs> and so we did. Um, okay, but let's look at that situation. Let's look at, it's sort of a weird thing, but we all understand. We all go, no, I get that, I understand. I mean, you know, you, you, in a bad mood and this sort of thing. But... What was he so angry at? Why was he beating the steering wheel and turning red? I'll tell you. We lost eight seconds getting to the post office. That's why. <laughs> we only have two options here. Either one, another human being outside myself didn't validate me, didn't understand that I was important, and I felt my life literally felt threatened, and I responded in anger. Or I want my eight seconds to get to the post office quicker. One of those two things explains road rage. I'm guessing it's not the eight seconds. Right? Yeah, I don't think it is. Okay, well, how do we explain uh, socioeconomic prejudice or racism? How do we explain that stuff? We explain it through this, you know, I won't dishonor others thing. Because, you know, let's say, you know, uh, 10 of us are in a lifeboat, okay? And we're drifted sea. And somebody's got to be thrown out of the lifeboat in order to survive. And three of the people in the lifeboat are Polish. How easy is it going to be for me to develop a philosophy that Polish people are inferior? My life is being threatened here. Of course Polish people are inferior. Of course they should be thrown out first. And I would actually probably develop a, a list of ridiculous reasons that I could get you to buy into, because if you bought into them, you would feel more secure too. Racism. Socioeconomic prejudice. We do it in religious beliefs too. All over scripture it's saying be one, be one, agree, be like-minded. How many denominations do we have? And we're all right. And they're all wrong. I grew up believing, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, we believed that when the fall happened, you know, you know what was created? The Democratic Party. We really did. We actually believed, you know. Why? Because we're trying to survive in the, right, in the lifeboat. We have to be right. They have to be wrong. I can't listen to them. I can't love my enemies. The Holocaust, genocide in Rwanda, the slave trade. Think of it. It's all explained by what Moses says in three paragraphs. That's genius. It really is. So, what do we do? You know, as, as believers, um, we, we have to go back, as Paul instructs us to do, and we have to get our validation directly from the only one who can give us the validation. So what this means is, um, when my wife doesn't validate me, right? When my kids don't validate me, when my boss doesn't recognize me, when somebody criticizes me, when I feel anger rising up, I get away and I go to God and I say, God, I'm looking for something here and I'm going to make a really stupid decision. I need you to give it to me. And I want to promise you this. He'll do it. He'll do it. He'll say, 
I love you. I care about you. You're okay. You're a great man. You know? And then we turn around from that heart and we praise God back. And we say, no, you're great. And, and we have a kind of mirror image of, of what the Trinity actually experiences and what life was like before the fall. And that's the place that we have to get to because that's the place that heals our families. And that's the place that you know, heals us from this torture of, of always trying to measure up. You want to ask us to do something. I think Luke is going to come up and close the night. But you know, for maybe five minutes as you walk back to wherever you're going tonight, if we could just be quiet. And actually, and there's a couple questions I want you to ask yourself. Where am I looking for my validation? A few questions. Who am I hurting in this process? Who am I damaging in this process? And then, I want you to ask God, will you take this away from me? Because in a sense, it's a false religion, really. We're looking for what Jesus did on the cross through somebody else because it's easier, you know? But we have to trust in faith. We have to see through a window dimly. We have to wait for the future. We have to believe now what is unseen. You know, and that's, the, that's our calling. How am I trying to validate myself? Who am I damaging by trying to validate myself? Um, and then ask God, will you take this away from me? And you're going to have to do it again and again. You're going to have to find your log on your river, and you're going to have to go there, and you're going to have to seek hard after God, because we'll forget. We will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for even giving us, um, we thank you for coming after us, and we thank you for rescuing us from ourselves. We thank you that you were loving enough to create us. We repent of being disobedient enough to walk away from you. And we thank you that you were loving enough to come after us and to rescue us from our sins through offering your son as a living sacrifice. Father, our faith is completely in him. There's nothing good in us. He is good. My faith is completely in him. Only he can validate me. When you look at me, Father, help me believe that you see your son in me and that you love me because you see your son. And I, I praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.